Would you take God's word and turn to Jeremiah chapter 11? For those that are visiting with us, we are engaged in a series about life in the trenches. When life gets hard, how do we respond as believers? We looked at Gideon, we looked at Hosea this morning, we're looking at Jeremiah. Next week, we're taking a look at Job. If you haven't noticed, we live in a world of urgent. When you hear people talk, there's this urgency based upon their perceptions. When you hear politicians talk, there's this whole urgency about what they say they have to say and what they're going to do. Issues of justice and mercy, orphans, poverty, wars. There's an urgency about what we need to do and not to do. Think about terrorist groups. I mean, there's a lot of urgency there about trying to stop just unsuspected violence around the world. Violent crime seems to be escalating. If you talk to some people about climate change, there's an urgency there. There's certain health epidemics that are now being faced. Zika virus, some other antibacterial strains that are coming into the U.S. There's even an urgency around bathrooms. Who can and who can't use them? Have you noticed everything is in crisis mode? All these urgencies vying for our attention and support, for our emotions. So what do we give our emotions to? Now, I want to make a statement, then ask a question. The question isn't mine. It's a question that comes from David Platt. But listen to the statement then listen to the question. Here's a statement. It should be on the screen. The church does not have the time to waste pursuing a Christian spin on the American dream. Now, I realize that slowed it. There's a lot of things I could say about it. I will say some things later. But when I talk about urgency in the church today, I sense that we do not have a lot of time and energy and talent to waste. So it better be focused. It better be centered. It better be looking to the author and finish of our faith. Amen? But the church does not have the time to waste pursuing a Christian spin on the American dream. I know some of you are already distressed. You're thinking, what's going to be the question? Well, let's flip it around and ask this question then. How can we in the church best unleash the people of God in the spirit of God with the word of God? That's a question that really addresses the same statement I just made. Now, we could ask, where's the hope? When you look at our world, when you look at what's going on, when you look at what's happening, when you hear all the reports, where is the hope? The hope should be in the church. But if we're off pursuing some other kind of spin on the church other than what Christ wants, people will not see the hope. Now, in part, if we're going to do this, if we're going to listen to this question, if we're going to respond in the way Christ wants us to, we have to put everything on the table. Now, you might ask, what do you mean everything? I mean everything. The gospel compels us. 
that if we follow Christ, literally everything, and again, you're saying, what's everything mean? It means everything. It means all your stuff. It means all your ideas. It means your emotions. It means every single aspect that you live and breathe gets put on the table and is negotiable in terms of what Christ calls us to be and to do. We have language like this in the New Testament. He says, die to self. That means you put everything on the table. He says, Paul, I'm crucified with Christ. Another way of saying, you know what? I'm dying to self. Paul says, I'm a living sacrifice. Jesus even said, you know, if you don't hate, and he included dad and mom in that, and of course, it's a comparison thing, saying in contrast to your love towards me, everything should diminish So we're going to answer these questions. We've got to put everything on the table. And we as a church got to ask questions like this. What needs to go? What needs to change? What needs to stay the same? And then we wait for God to answer. And by waiting, I don't mean we sit there and twiddle our thumbs. I mean, we engage with what we already know God wants us to engage with, but we are sensitive enough to his word and to his spirit that we shift when he says, you need to make a shift here. Now, human nature puts our spin on this. Luke chapter 9, there's a story. And it tells us that we, for the most part, ask the wrong questions. We're good at asking the wrong questions. They had a problem. They had a crisis. Large crowd, time to eat, no food. Now, it wasn't true they didn't have any food. They had five loaves and two fishes. But in this story, the 12 go to Jesus and they ask him this question, said, Jesus, why don't you dismiss the crowd because they need to go eat and get a motel for the evening because we can't feed them? Wrong question. See, we spin Jesus according to us. And when you think about the American dream spin, Far too many believers believe if they pray the right prayer, which means getting prayer back in schools, which means that we're going to force everybody to pray our prayers. And if we have a good Christian in the White House, and if we make Christian morals the mainstream of our culture, and if we do all these things, then we will have freedom, a great economy, and everyone will like us, and we will rule the world. That's what a lot of believers, even though they might not overtly say that, that's what they choose to believe. Now, when we say that, we have stories like Jeremiah that bring this problem. Jeremiah followed God with everything that he had. And he was hated. He was despised. He was blamed for the local and national problems. Even his own family tries to kill him. And of course, we good Christian theologians sit back and say, well, you know, Jeremiah is the exception. That's the Old Testament. And we're in the New Testament. And we have all this little theological things we jump around explaining why that isn't the condition today. But then we're faced with countries like Zimbabwe. I mean, many of you know I've been there uh, several times. And Zimbabwe has a horrible, horrible dictator. His name is President Mugabe. And when you look at the nation... There are far more Christians percentage-wise than we have in America. And yet, 
They live in abject poverty. 92% unemployment. Now, it's very tribal. You got the Intabeli and you got the Shona. And if you go to Harare, it doesn't look too bad because that's where the Shona are. But when you look at the Intabeli, which Mugabe purposely oppresses, he uses the government to enslave them through poverty. But they have been praying for decades and decades and decades, since the early 80s when he took over and slaughtered 25,000 people to ensure his reign. So all of a sudden we start saying, okay, if we do these things and if we believe that God will give us a great economy and we'll have freedom and life will be easy, what about countries like Zimbabwe? It kind of breaks down that argument. Now let's just take that and personalize it in America. How many have ever run into people who didn't like you? (laughs) Raise your hand. Okay, I don't think there's a hand missing. In fact, there's some people that You can use this word, it sounds strong, and yet it's there. They hate you. And it's kind of just because. They have their reasons, but you sit there and say, I have no idea what I did. And and sometimes they look at you and say, well, you know what you did. And you're like, no, I don't. But they won't tell you because somehow they want to hang on to their hate. Now today, it's interesting in our culture, that if you disagree or say no to some people... We are now classifying that in certain categories as hate speech. And it doesn't matter who you are. This past week, DePaul University had a guest speaker in. He happened to be a certain leaning politically one way. I won't tell you which one. But the event was protested by the Black Lives Matter movement. They wouldn't let people in. They wouldn't let people out. They stormed the stage. Finally, a junior... Katie Danforth, who was an African-American young lady, stood up in an impromptu speech, very special. She said this, listen, all of us, we really need to check ourselves. I mean, I'm here to learn. I'm here to work hard. And you're not respecting a conversation of ideas. This is just ideas. It's opinions. We live in a country where people died so people can stand up and express these ideas. The people who organized the protest walked on stage, and they called her three things. What do you think that was? They called her a bigot. They called her a racist. And they called her a white supremacist. I mean, one of their own. I mean, her comments fell on deaf ears, and they ran her out of the building. But think about the lack of respect that we have today. You know, we saw, and and Bill did a beautiful job telling us, where Memorial Day comes from, and he showed that beautiful picture. I mean, just yesterday, a guy, out of lack of respect for a cemetery that had white crosses like that, drove his car through and ran them over. Another display out in L.A., they vandalized the names of people who served in a particular war with graffiti that blocked most of it. And they don't even understand that the freedom that was given to them to do those things, they just disrespected. Now, I'm sure that in your mind, you're already gone to places that you had conversations with people and and they've just spewed some very difficult things. I remember a conversation, again, I'm talking about a previous church, not here, so I don't want people saying, I wonder who that was. It was nobody here, okay? You wouldn't know these people, so it's a safe illustration. 
But there was a couple that was very, very angry at me. Now, I know you have a hard time imagining that because I'm just such a likable guy, right? And so I got them together with some people from our leadership team. And for a full hour, they shouted and yelled and spewed anger and hate. Yes, they were Christians, and they spiritualized their anger. That's what we do when we want to get angry and not look at our own hearts. We want to look at everybody else. They made accusation after accusation for an hour. I mean, it was intense. I know that some of the leadership team said they just never quite saw anything like this. At the end of the hour, they looked at me and said, what do you have to say for yourself? I said, well, I said, I got a question before I respond. Is there anything I could say or do that would change your mind about what you just shared? Their answer very quickly was, absolutely not. So with that comment, I ended the meeting. I said, let's pray together and go, because if there's nothing I could say or do. And to this day, I have, I guess I'm still struck with, why were they so angry? What really was the issue? Because none of the issues they addressed really were issues. But you've been in relationships like that, haven't you? Sometimes it's family, sometimes it's friends, sometimes it's neighbors, sometimes it's situations where, you know, you're just with a group of people and someone else attacks that group for what they claim they believe. But the tragedy is that we live in a culture that no longer knows how to disagree or think. Now, that's not new. There's nothing new under the sun. We're going to see in a moment in Jeremiah what he was faced with. But it's so easy today to spew out accusations and labels in an attempt to silence those who do not hold our opinions. And like I said before, this is nothing new. The players have changed for many. And for many, it's just kind of closer to home now because the church in America has never been faced with such kind of accusations before. But think about the church itself. We've practiced this for years, haven't we? In church world, if we disagree with somebody, what do we do? We just start a new church. <laughs> We call them denominations. And then we talk about those people over there. And we even have cute little labels about them. Oh, yeah, they're, and you put it in, whether it's fundamentalist, whether it's charismatic, whether it's liberal, we just use labels to attach to who they are. So this morning, I want to talk about people who, for whatever reason, wish you were not part of their life, okay? And we're going to see how this goes with Jeremiah. Little history, Jeremiah had no illusions about his calling. He was a prophet. In the Old Testament, prophets usually ended up in very, very bad situations. Prophets were sent because people had an inaccurate view of God. They didn't walk away from God, so to say, in their minds, but their thinking got twisted about who God was. And because they didn't like what the prophets had to say about calling them back, they were usually persecuted and killed. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. You say, but I say. You say, but I say. You say, but I say. And that's why the Pharisees and Sadducees were so angry to a point they wanted to kill. It was the 13th year of Josiah. He was a kid king. He came into power at age eight. Can you imagine that? Having a king that's eight years old. That's when he started. Now he's 21. We see one year later after Jeremiah starts preaching, 
Josiah destroys all the false gods. Politically, he does the right thing. Four years later, it's the 18th year, the book of the law was found. Now, you sit there and say, that's a bit odd. I mean, imagine the religious people who lost the book. It'd be like us not knowing where any Bibles are. Now, we live in a culture that we lose the book in our hearts. I don't know which is more tragic. The high priest humbles himself, calls the nation repentance, and at least outwardly. And imagine this scene. You got the right political leader. You got the right moral laws in place. You got him taking down the idols of the land, which should have been done. You got the high priest calling people to repent, what they should have done. And the crowds were coming back. The right laws were in place. It's all recorded in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. And sometimes people call this the great revival. Jeremiah at this point was prophesying, prophesying for five years. And you would think that everything should be fantastic. But here's what Jeremiah realized through the inspiration of God. That while Israel had the appropriate outward signs, and while they were coming back to the temple, and while they had the right laws, and while the king made an edict of getting rid of the idols of the land, all this was shallow and superficial. And what he began to understand is that you can have an executive fiat by a king to remove idols from their land. You can have a high priest who changes how they did worship. But it's an entirely another issue, removing those idols from people's hearts. That's why when you study Jeremiah, one of the major themes, it's found 66 times in the Hebrew, is the word heart. And with that word, we have words like deceitful, wicked, evil. And so what we learn here is, and what Jeremiah learned after 44, actually 42 years of of preaching, is that revival is not what happens in the moment. It's not that emotional, everybody comes back, the laws get put in place. Revival is what happens the next decade and 20 years down the road. Now, just a side note, it's 20 years from this point of revival that Nebuchadnezzar takes Daniel, the remnant, who puts a siege on Jerusalem. So understanding that Daniel and his cohorts were just being born in this generation. After this revival, tragedy happens. King Josiah dies. His son, Johaz, takes over. And Johaz spends no time in leading the people right back to their former way of life. And for the most part, people followed him gladly. So Jeremiah knew that he was called to be a prophet. He had no idea what the next 40 years would hold, except here's what God said at the very beginning before this revival happened. He said, listen, the people are not going to listen to you. They will blame you. They will try to kill you. And the only guarantee I'm going to give you is that I will not let them take your life. Everything else is on the table. Now, we wrestle with this, don't we? Because we like to think that if we did this, then we will get these results. That somehow if we follow Christ the way he calls us, then life will be comfortable. Here's the first principle I want to talk about this morning. 
It was the relationship and the mission that drove Jeremiah, not his circumstances. That's a truth that we have to learn about living life in the trenches when life gets hard. I mean, there are no guarantees in terms of what will come to us, but we are guaranteed the what? It's the relationship. And in that relationship, Christ says, I have called you. And what's our mission? Well, he spoke it clearly in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. The gospel is what we do for the sake of Christ. And that's why everything is on the table. But so often we sit back and say, okay, Jesus, take my life and let me be. Oh, no. Take my life and let it be consecrated all for thee. But we say, Jesus, I want to follow you, but don't mess with my programs. You know, don't mess with my music. Don't mess with the way I like doing church. I think the first thing we have to confess when we look at Jeremiah is that the Lord's plans are often different than ours. Amen? <laughs> we dismiss the crowd, say, go find supper at a motel. Jesus asks a very different question in Luke 9. He says, what do you have? In Matthew 24, when he talks to his disciples about the mission, he says, listen, guys, there will be those who hate you for my name's sake. Now, the key there is for my name's sake Sometimes we make people angry, and it's because of us. But he says, when you go out and you're salt and light, and you do good, and you bless people, that will make some people angry. Because they don't want grace, and they don't want truth. What's interesting in Jeremiah is we have the old message being kind of recycled. It goes over and over and over, and you see this through. And I want to pick one of those cycles out. It's in Jeremiah 11. You can follow there with me. And the pattern that we see is that God's people, being God's people, demand certain choices. And there are consequences to that choice. And the pattern we see is this. And it happens twice in our text this morning. There's Jeremiah's complaint. He doesn't like his circumstances. There's his request. He wants God to do something about it. Then there's God's answer. This is what God is going to do about it. So here's the first cycle. I'm going to read down through. You can follow with me. It's in Jeremiah 11. Verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Listen to the terms of this covenant and tell them to the people of Judah and to those who live in Jerusalem. Tell them this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Cursed is the man who does not obey. Obey me and do everything. Remember, everything's on the table. I command you, and you will be my people, and I'll be your God. Again, the key words there are listen, obey, pay attention. But they disobeyed. Ultimately, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in, lays siege to the city three times, ultimately destroys it. And it isn't until literally a century later, Nehemiah comes in and builds the walls, and Israel's restored. So we're talking about a huge span of history here. Let's pick up the story down in verse 18. Here's what Jeremiah is supposed to speak. He's going to speak it. But God says, listen, here's what's going to happen. In verse 18, because the Lord revealed their plot to me, I knew it. And for at that time, he showed me what they were going to do. And here's his self-description. 
I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not realize that they had plotted against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. That's a very poetic way of saying, Let's kill him. (laughs) And this is human nature at its best. When things go bad, when life becomes a bearable, what do we do? We blame, we go on a fault-finding mission, we shift responsibility, we do things that relieve the pain. We try to get rid of the problem, and the problem usually has a name to it, saying, if that person was no longer part of my life, life would be so much easier. The reality is that we've all sinned. I've sinned, you've sinned, we still are sinning. And if you don't believe that, we need to have a conversation afterwards. I'm sure I'll irritate you enough that you actually sin at that point. (laughs) But somehow, in our culture, even Christian culture, we expect error-free living. Which means people should never offend us. We should never be misunderstood. And when life goes terribly wrong, it's always someone else's fault. So here's Jeremiah's complaint. Here's the cycle. He says, God, I'm a gentle lamb being led to the slaughter. Now, here's his request in verse 20. But, O Lord Almighty, who judge righteously and test the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you I have committed my cause. So his request is this. God, I don't want you to come to my rescue. I want vengeance. I want eye for eye. I want tooth for tooth. Take them down to the slaughtering house. Show them who's boss. Now, here's God's response, verse 21. And Jeremiah actually likes his response. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the men of Anath, who are seeking your life and saying, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hands. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish them. Their young men will die by the sword, their sons and daughters by famine. Not even a remnant will be left to them, because I will bring disaster on the men of Anath in the year of their punishment. And I can imagine Jeremiah saying, way to go, God. That's what I want. And, you know, it almost sounds like God's really harsh here. But here's what we have to understand. Way back in the beginning, he says, listen, if you follow me, guess what? You're going to be my people. But if you choose not to follow me, there are consequences. And here are the consequences of their behavior. So Jeremiah thinks, got the right answer. Let's pick it up in chapter 12, verse 1. I love the way he says and starts, you are always righteous, O Lord. It's kind of like, God, you know, I know this. I know you know. I know this. But when I bring a case before you, yet I would speak about, with you about your justice. So here's the dilemma. Jeremiah had the right answer from God, but it's not happening soon enough. He's living in a time And this is what he says. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You've planted them. They've taken root. They grow. They bear fruit. You're always on their lips, but far from their hearts. That's during that kind of false revival season where the churches were full, where the nation was having the right kind of laws. But you note there, their hearts were not in it. So Jeremiah's complaint was this. God, could you do this slaughtering stuff like yesterday? (laughs) You're taking too long. You ever feel like that God is just taking too long to do something for you? Amen? 
Now, come on. We all feel that, don't we? We're in a hurry. We have an urgency about us. Doesn't God understand? It has to happen right now. He goes on to say in verse 3, Yet you know me, O Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. In other words, you know my heart. I like this next phrase. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. What's in his heart? (laughs) Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land lie parched and the grass in the field be withered? Because those who live it in it are wicked. Their animals and birds have perished. Moreover, the people are saying, he will not see what happens to us. So his request is, listen, now, God, do you hear what you're saying? I'm not going to live long enough to see this happen. And even if it does, they have plans. And I think Jeremiah suddenly thought he might not be around to see this whole vengeance stuff. So here's God's response in verse 5. And this was not what Jeremiah wanted to hear. If you raced with men on foot and they've worn you out, the idea there is you're, you're running a marathon, okay? And God says, listen, if you can't handle the marathon, how can you compete with horses? See the analogy? If men wear you out when I get you running with the horses, what are you going to feel like? If you stumble in a safe country, he's saying, Jeremiah, right now you're, you're pretty safe. It's going to get a lot worse. How will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? And then he says this, and you can imagine this broke Jeremiah's heart. Your brothers, your own family, even they have betrayed you. And they have raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. So the plot to murder Jeremiah came from his own family. But here's God's answer. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. I want to talk about some lessons we can learn. We already looked at one, but let me look at some others here. One of the lessons we can learn from Jeremiah is that if it looks like revival and sounds like revival and acts like revival, make sure you check out the heart. Let's be honest. We are enamored with eternal displays of whatever. We are into the celebrity status. We are into the event-driven culture. We are into the whole emotional charge of things. We are in love with TV version of reality, and they lived happily ever after. But what determines success is the heart. And how we determine the condition of the heart is you have to go long-term. You got to see what happens in weeks and months and years. And when you go with the heart, it allows two things for us. Number one, we don't have to micromanage someone's behavior. See, the other version is as long as people do what we want them to do, then it's all good. The second thing it does for us is that we don't have to fix them. What we have to do is walk with them. But one of the lessons we learned from Jeremiah is that if it looks like revival and sounds like revival and acts like revival, just because the building's full and everybody's applauding doesn't mean that the hearts are right. Here's the second lesson. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. (laughs) We don't like to hear that, do we? The one promise God gave Jeremiah up front was this. They will never succeed in taking your life. That's it. And I can imagine at some points Jeremiah wished and was hoping they would. Number three, it's okay to cry. 
a lot. Ever read the Lamentation book? That's the tears of Jeremiah. It's a book of tears. And when you read that book, I think if Jeremiah could put an end note, he would say this. God cried a lot with me too. God cried a lot with me too. I know the perspective sometimes it seems like God is really harsh with Israel and Jeremiah, but God loves us. And he delights when we respond to his love. And he desires that that love be returned. And nothing is more painful when you love someone and that love is not returned. Nothing is more painful to put your arms around someone and to love them and they push you away. But think about this. To put a loved one in harm's way so that on the off chance they might return. I mean, what parent enjoys that? But that's the analogy of God. Next truth, when God, God is an, enough even when you don't feel like he isn't. Now we have the example of our Lord and Savior in this in Luke chapter 27. It says about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Remember what he said? Eloi, Eloi, lama sanctpatha, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he bore our sin, it felt like God abandoned him, but our emotions do not determine the ability of God, nor do they determine the outcome of our lives. Next principle, our focus will determine our survival. It's the relationship and the mission that will give you hope. And you are called. You're called to be salt and light right where you're at. But it's human nature that when things get tough, we want to change. And we want to change our jobs. We want to change our homes. We want to change our marriages. I want peace and comfort. Give me the drug that will give me that. But Jeremiah tells us that life at times gets very, very, very hard. But we never, never, never change our focus. Paul writes in Hebrews 12, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. We say we want to be like Jesus, that you will not grow weary and lose hearts. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And, you've not, and you have forgotten that the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to close with a song as they do. Uh, I like looking at different prayers that people have. And we're going to close with this prayer. It's very simple. And then I'll close with prayer. David Brannard, who was a missionary to Native Americans, when this country was first opened up, here was his short prayer that he prayed every day. I want you to pray it with me. Lord, let me make a difference that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. Think about the power of that prayer. Let me pray for you. Father God, I even know this morning that there are people that that are kind of down in the trench. Life's hard. And every time they turn a corner, it seems like it just gets worse. We pray for your presence. We know it's there. We know emotionally we don't always feel like it's there. You didn't feel that when you bore our sin. 
But may your spirit just intercede and, and give them a sense of who you are in the midst of all this. Doesn't guarantee outcomes, but it does guarantee the relationship. That we can and will see you face to face, that we will have an eternity with you. But while we're here on this earth, our call is to navigate, to be salt and light, to blast, even when people push back. And because they say and do the wrong things, doesn't give us a license to do that as well. We thank you for Jeremiah's story. We don't like to hear it. But may we be faithful. May we maybe cry like Jeremiah did. But at the end, when we see you face to face, we want to be found faithful, Lord. Whatever that means. We don't always have a clear picture of that. But thank you, we can be here and worship you. May we do that in spirit and in truth. In your name we pray. And everyone said.